For tonight's episode, I did access the site cancrime.com, as well as several different CBC articles. I've also found a document on scc.css.lexum.com. I will try to link the articles I used in the Crime and Mystery Canada Facebook group. Please join the group. Um, We can start having a discussion about the cases. You can also give me some case suggestions or send me your weekly dose of kindness stories. You can also find us on Instagram at Crime and Mystery Canada. Tonight, I have a new co-host with me. She's a good friend of mine, and I've known her for about 15 years. She's also a true crime aficionado. As I mentioned in my prologue a few weeks ago, I'll be having various co-hosts doing the episodes with me, but I'll try to do a better job at introducing them. So with me tonight is my friend Nadine, and we'll be covering a new case. So let's get started. Hi, my name is Danielle, and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, I'm Danielle. And I'm Nadine. And you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. Today we're going to be talking about the murder of Corporal Aurel Bourgeois and Constable Michael O'Leary. I don't know this one. I'm intrigued. So, it happened very near our hometown. Okay. This case will sound like the plot to a movie, but I can assure you that it's very real and it happened very near both our hometowns. It involves a kidnapping, a ransom, and the brutal and tragic murder of two officers. It was a tragedy that still felt too fresh when another police slaying happened in the same town in 2014, which is the story for another day. This is the story of the kidnapping of Raymond Stein and the killing of Corporal Aurel Bourgeois and Constable Michael O'Leary. Anyone who spent time in Moncton, New Brunswick would have been familiar with Sai's restaurant. I remember. It's not open anymore, but I definitely remember it. It closed down a number of years ago, and its owner passed away a few years back. But it ran for about 50 years. It's where couples went for a fancy night out. It's the family restaurant that many families frequented on a weekly basis. It's where you went for graduation. It was the place to go get seafood. Everyone in the area knew the restaurant, and many people also knew the owner. Simon Stein, also known as Cy, had opened a coffee shop on High Street with his mother, Sarah, many years ago. From their modest beginnings, they moved on to open the restaurant on Main Street, which became the place to go in Moncton. It was called Cy's Restaurant, and all the who's who went there. Everyone went there. It was arguably the best restaurant in town. On December 12th or December 13th, depending on the source you read, in 1974, Sai's son Raymond, who was 14 at the time, was heading home from the restaurant around 10.30pm with his grandmother Sarah. They were being driven by one of the restaurant employees who dropped them off at their house and then promptly returned to work. When Raymond and his grandmother entered the house, they were confronted by a bone-chilling sight. A pair of masked men wielding revolvers was standing there waiting for them. As soon as they walked in, the men asked for Sai. So it was like a targeted, since everyone knew they were wealthy, they were, yeah, yeah, okay. So the intent was monetary. It's not 100% clear who the intended target of this whole thing was. But if they asked for Sai. They asked for Sai, so it's not known if they wanted Sai in the situation, were expecting him to come home, or were expecting family members to come home. 
but it was purposefully his house. Okay. Sarah told them that Sai was still at the restaurant. Now, it's unknown if Sai was their intended target or if they were expecting other family members to come in. Regardless, the two masked men didn't waste any time. They bound Sarah and tied her to the stair railing. She watched helplessly as they placed a balaclava backwards on Raymond's head and left, taking Raymond with them. The intention could be kidnap the son, hold him for ransom. Or it could have been kidnapping the father and holding him for ransom as well. Either way, it was intended and then it could have turned into a crime of opportunity but for sure they did not have good intentions by being in the house and they had a balaclava with them fair so something bad was going to happen regardless of who walked into the house one of the men stayed in the street with raymond while the other one rushed to get the car when he pulled up the masked man got into wait they didn't have the car ready and running so they were just like standing in the street with a backwards i can never say that word masked 14 year old yes hoping to have no witnesses and the other guy just like went and grabbed the car that seems a little amateur it was probably parked around the corner i'm assuming so the family wouldn't be suspicious right do you remember this is december it's cold it's 10 30 at night still it just seems like i'm not sure where the house is but if it's like in a i'm not sure either moderately populated area 10 30 night isn't that i don't know what night of the week this is but you think like that's just putting yourself at risk to have a witness a police car drive by like it just seems very suspect to have a teenage boy with a mask over his face right it just seems a little amateurish to me okay i agree but it still seemed to work for them on that night when he pulled up the masked men got into the back of the car with raymond and they drove off into the night as they drove off the boy could see slightly through the ski mask and he had a general idea of the direction they were headed. Now, this would have been a terrifying experience for anyone, but I can only imagine how scary it would have been for such a young kid. At one point during the drive, the kidnappers actually stopped to make a call. They then drove on a bit further and stopped at an apartment building. And this is 1974, so when you say stop and make a call... Payphone. It's a payphone. Okay, not a cell phone on the side of the road. No. Okay. Yeah, and I didn't go into the details um, here, but he did know exactly where they were. Like, he knew what street they were on, what direction they were driving. He was paying very close attention and would have been familiar with the area. So he knew exactly where they were. I'm assuming we're going to come back to the call. I'm assuming maybe it was like a ransom call or there's another accomplice. It was a ransom call. Okay. And we're going to come back to it a little bit later. Yeah. They then drove a bit further on and stopped at an apartment building. Raymond listened helplessly as they made another call to his father. One of the men then took $10 from the kid and went out to get food while the other man stayed in the apartment with him. So they stole his $10 from the 14-year-old kid. Correct. Okay. Whom they've kidnapped. Okay. Kicking him when he's down. Pretty much. I'm assuming they had nothing. Right. Or they didn't want to spend their own money. I don't know. Shows the level of desperation. Or maturity. Mm. I mean, bullies. Right. Intimidation. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. Meanwhile, back at Sai's house, Raymond's grandmother did not waste any time. After about 15 to 20 minutes of fighting her bindings, she managed to get herself free and immediately called her son. He drove home as fast as he could. As he got to the house, he received the first ransom call from the kidnappers. So that would have been the one when they pulled over the car at the payphone and called him. They were looking for $15,000. Which in 1974 was a significant amount of money. 1974 in Moncton, right? You have to think about where it was. Obviously, you can't be asking for a million. The guy isn't that well off. Sai knew he would do anything to get his son back unharmed. 
So he drove back to the restaurant to see how much money he had available there. At the restaurant, he received another call. In total, he would receive four calls from the kidnappers with instructions on what he needed to do to get his son back unharmed. At some point, the Moncton police were contacted. It was unclear to me with the material I had access to at what point this happened, but they did attempt to trace some of the calls that were made by the kidnapper. And did they say who contacted the police? Was it Sarah the grandmother? or I believe it was Sai. Sai contacts the bank manager at the Bank of Nova Scotia, who begins the process of getting Sai the money he needs. With the help of a bank clerk, the manager takes notes of the serial numbers on the money in order to be able to trace it later. Back at the kidnapper's apartment, after what must have been an agonizing several-hour wait, they finally put Raymond back in the car and drove him to the Riverview Mall. Sai was waiting there with the ransom money. The kidnappers had demanded the $15,000 in $10 bills. It's very specific. I'm guessing because if they were going to spend it, it would be less suspicious to have a $10 bill than a $100 bill in 1974. Yeah, and typically, like, that's where, like, I feel like businesses pay more attention to larger bills. That's correct. And would suspect it to be counterfeit or stolen, so... They'll check serial numbers on bigger denominations. Which bumps them up in that amateur list that I was thinking, but I guess if you watch any amount of crime movies or... I don't know how much of that was around in 1974. publicly. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. As instructed, Sai left the money in a ditch and watched as the kidnappers arrived, took the money from the ditch, and released his son. He hurriedly bundled Raymond into the car and they drove back to the restaurant. Now, Sai had contacted the police, but despite numerous calls from the kidnappers, they had been unable to trace the phone calls. And the police didn't go with him? They did, and we're going to get to that. Okay, sorry. This being 1974, I'm sure tracing a call wasn't what it is today. Uh, I'm sure it's much more complicated. You probably needed longer longer phone conversations in order to get a trace there's a couple sources too like there was the payphone they called probably a landline at the apartment so that adds layers of complication for sure at the time of the drop the city police were present nearby but because the rcmp hadn't been called for several hours after the kidnapping had happened no roadblocks had been put into place so there were four police cars from the local police force present in the area One of these cars included Corporal Aurel Bourgeois and his partner, Constable Michael O'Leary. Bourgeois was 47 years old and was married with four children. He was an 18-year veteran of the Moncton Police Force. O'Leary was 33 years old and also had a young family with two kids. That December morning, Bourgeois and O'Leary were waiting nearby the drop location with the three other patrol cars. After the drop was made, they observed a light beige Cadillac as well as a blue Dodge vehicle driving slowly away from the drop location. Now this kind of leads me to believe they weren't close enough to actually see what happened. I think they were probably far away that they saw cars sort of passing the area but didn't actually see the drop. Right. You mentioned Riverview Mall, so it was a ditch near the Riverview Mall. Correct. See, I don't know what it looked like in 1974, but... From the time I lived there to now, it's a rather developed area, but it might not have been as developed at the time. Yeah, I'm guessing there probably wasn't too much around back in 74. So they couldn't be too close because then they would have been Been visible to the 
perps and then That's they would have not true. dropped off Raymond, right? Because you don't want to risk the child's life in the situation. So yeah, or they were not in their vehicles. They were somewhere nearby to see the drop. So yeah, it kind of makes things complicated. And my understanding is they were all in their vehicles at this point. So they observed the light beige Cadillac and the Dodge car driving by. After conferring, the other patrol cars radioed that they would follow the Dodge, which they would eventually find contained the Moncton chief of police accompanied by three other individuals. And the chief of police wasn't aware of the situation? I'm assuming he's off duty. I think he was there in an unofficial capacity and just did not tell people he was there. And with three other individuals who were also police officers? It didn't specify, but Moncton wasn't a big place. I don't think there was a ton of people on the police force. So if I were to fathom a guess, I would say there were probably three individuals that were maybe police volunteers or something like that and knowing that this was happening the chief went on location but didn't tell anyone he was there and was this his personal vehicle or is this an unmarked i i I highly doubt it was his personal vehicle i like to think they would have recognized it yeah that's okay that's it could have been the car weird detail that might not matter whatsoever but i just find it well it will matter because three cars went after the dodge so it distracted from so then O'Leary and Bourgeois were told to go check out the Cadillac. Their reply came back through the radio. They said, okay, they're going to head over and check it out. This is the last anyone would ever hear of the pair. Their bodies were found on Evangeline Drive, northeast of Moncton, on December 15th. According to what was pieced together later by the evidence that was found, it's believed that O'Leary and Bourgeois followed and then pulled over the Cadillac. Driving the car was James Hutchison and Richard Ambrose, who's also known as Richard Belgeron. These men were known criminals and were also Raymond's kidnappers. It's believed that the two criminals overpowered the officers and stuffed them into the trunk of the Cadillac. Overpowered or took them by force? Like they would have had a, like they had their guns, right? Like they this, were the known... grandmother mentioned that they both had pistols. Correct. And they were also okay. known to carry guns pretty much at all times. Okay. So I don't know if the police approached not really thinking these were the kidnappers. I don't know exactly. Not knowing they and were armed. Nobody or... really knows what happened. Right. The truth of the matter is no one saw anything and the two accused never talked. It's just like, it's just so surprising that they would harm these two police officers but let the 14 year old go i mean i guess i don't know if they felt cornered at that point right and desperate and with they the were money so in their pocket to getting away with the money and yeah. led to desperate measures they drove out to a secluded area where they handcuffed the officers to a tree they tried to dig a grave with a snow shovel but when that broke they drove to a local hardware store where they purchased shovels Right, because it's December. The ground would have been frozen. Yes. So that's quite the endeavor to dig Even graves. digging with a snow shovel on a spring day right. is going to be hard. A plastic snow shovel you need. Yeah. Know, like actual gardening Even if it's tools. metal, it's just flat, so it's you wouldn't be able. So yeah. they broke the shovel. They drove to a hardware store. The receipts for these shovels were eventually found. According to several sources, they then returned to where the officers were handcuffed and forced them to dig their own graves. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's like a whole other level of sickness. To me, this is not just we're cornered, we're desperate, I'm going to shoot you and flee. This is like a level of 
intent. So whether they, because they were criminals and they had a history with police, which also to me sort of exp- not doesn't rationalize, but explains as to why they might not harm an innocent child who they yeah. were. He was Raymond was a means to an end mm-hmm. in terms of getting money, but this seems personal. This seems vindictive. Right. And I'll get into who these men were a little bit later, but one of them was a career criminal. And I think you're exactly right. It was a level of hatred towards the police that came out in the crime. The crime scene showed signs of a struggle by the tree where they were handcuffed and O'Leary suffered a shot to the shoulder, which is believed to have happened during a scuffle with the kidnappers. The officers were then made to stand in their graves and then they were both shot in the head with their service revolvers. Like execution style. With their own guns. Oh my god. It's believed that Ambrose shot one of them and Hutchison shot the other. And when you read about both of those men, um, especially police officers that kind of knew them, they believe that Hutchison was the mastermind of the situation and made Ambrose shoot one of the cops because that way he was just as guilty and couldn't rat him out. So were these two known, obviously they're individually known criminals, but were they known to work together? They're known associates. Okay. The next day, a full-blown search for the officers was on, as well as a manhunt for the suspects. Officer Dale Swansburg and his partner, who for reasons that were not clear suspect James Hutchison of the kidnapping, are now looking for his known associates. So they can't find James Hutchison, so they start looking for people who know him. Raymond's father might have seen, like he was there to drop the money off, so he might have seen one of them not knowing who these men were, but maybe given a general description. And if the police knew James and what was the other? Hutchison and Ambrose. Hutchison and Ambrose, then they might have put two and two together. Possibly. And uh, Sarah, the grandmother, was able to give them a description of the men. Right. Um, so and Raymond would have seen them before they put the mask correct. on his face so too. So I do suspect that through the description and them knowing who the criminals were in the area, they just decided to start looking for Hutchison. Hutchison had a 30-year criminal history of armed robbery and property crime, and was out on parole at the time. What does property crime mean? Um, I think it is basically uh, destruction to oh, a person. So like you, you rent an apartment and you might ruin it. To trash the place, trash or like, I don't like you, so I go over to your house and bust a window okay. or something like that. But still aggressive, general violent behavior. Armed robbery is... Armed robbery, yeah, is very serious. Um, Property crime is probably less serious, but I think he was just... Still an aggression behind He's just a violent man. While on the search, the officers run into Ambrose, who's a known drug dealer. On his person, they find half of the ransom money, but more disturbingly, they also find the keys to Bourgeois and O'Leary's squad car. That seems really stupid. Yeah. To keep that. Okay. It's almost like a trophy. I don't know if it even was intentional. Was the vehicle left where they were taken? Where the two police officers were taken? Like they probably found the police They don't talk about where the police car was. So I don't know if it was found where the car was pulled over. They did stuff the police officers in the trunk of the Cadillac. But I don't know if one of the men took the squad car and the other one... followed or something. Yeah. And I'm guessing it was probably an unmarked vehicle if they were waiting during a kidnapping. So I'm not sure where that car was. It might not be relevant. They find the bodies of the two officers on December 15th. The town was in shock and in mourning. So they found that quite quickly after the crime. It took two days, two to three days, depending on, it's 
there's different sources that state okay. a different day for the kidnapping, but I think some of them talk about the day of the drop versus the day of the kidnapping because it was right. like the following morning. But yeah, it took about two days. Okay. Hutchison's name is now all over the news. He's a wanted man considered armed and dangerous. The pressure of being a wanted man with his face on display everywhere and his name ringing in everyone's ears, eventually gets to Hutchison, who turns himself in shortly after. Did he stay in the Moncton area this whole time or did he run? I believe he was still in the area. He says that he was afraid that if the police got their hands on him, he would not survive. I suspect his feelings were probably warranted. I mean, they killed one of their, two of their own. In the line of duty. In the line of duty, trying to save a 14 year old boy so i yeah. mean yeah not to say that the police would ever do anything inappropriate so no and emotions were running very high and he was considered armed and obviously extremely dangerous so i feel like if you pulled him over you would be on extremely high alert that's fair both men pled not guilty to the charges in their 1975 trial they were both found guilty and sentenced to hang hang Wow, that's what the sentence was in 1974? 75. 75. Hanging. It just seems so... Non-Canadian? And just antiquated? Is that the right word? Mm -hmm. Like, just very... Wow. I I honestly have never really thought of when the death penalty was taken out of Canada. But to hang just seems like a very, yeah, antiquated... You mean as opposed to like lethal, lethal injection, injection or the electric or the chair? electric chair. Not that those are in any way more humane. I just feel like hangings didn't exist in like It feels very times. medieval. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Neither one of them testified at the trial. Now, as we know, the death penalty was abolished in 76. So one year later. So which they would have still been on death row. Correct. I'm assuming. So their sentences ended up being commuted to life in prison. Which means truly life in prison without parole or life in prison and t- with possibility of parole at 25 so years? So this I actually researched a little bit after my first episode because I know life in prison in Canada doesn't usually mean life in prison. Thing. yeah. So in the US you can get consecutive life sentences meaning... Which I don't believe you can in Canada. So life in prison... And I mean, don't quote me on this. I just did a quick research, but I think life in prison used to mean 25 years. Yeah. And then the judge could put the possibility of parole at 10 years, at 25. And I think if you were deemed a dangerous offender, you could basically not get paroled. But I think it has now changed where you can get life in prison and then the possibility of parole like 40 years from now. Okay. That's so interesting that you mentioned that because I actually had this conversation with my husband recently. As a journalist, he covered quite a few court cases. And I was saying that. I was like, I don't know what life life means in Canada, in the Canadian judicial system. And I was reading something, again, don't quote me, and I had understood it, that you could get life, in, like the maximum sentence you could get in Canada was life in prison with a possibility of parole at 25 years, but it doesn't mean they need to parole you. But that those very dangerous offenders, like a Picton or someone like that, would, yes, go in front of the parole board, but not get paroled so that's yeah. how I interpreted it but I, maybe I think it, it did be... change a while back because I'm pretty sure that it used to mean 25 years but yeah I'm not 100% clear and I know what I was reading the other day was saying it changed like not that long not that ago, long ago. Okay. so that the possibility of parole can be extended okay. so you can get life in prison and be considered for parole after 10 years or after 40 years right but it's stipulated by the judge so in 75 or 76 i guess is when it was 
changed to life, what did it mean then? Um, it seems to have meant 25 years. Okay. But not that they would be out in 25 years. There would be possibility of parole. Considered for parole. Okay. In 1980, Ambrose escaped from prison and was on the run for three days before being caught. Uh, later in 2000, he was released on parole. So that would have been 25 or so years after he right. was sentenced. How old would he have been? I never asked uh, the he, ages. He wasn't very old. So Ambrose was younger. Hutchison was the older one. And I think Ambrose is currently in his 70s. Okay. Yeah. So he wouldn't have been very old at the time. Later in 2000, he was released on parole, but that freedom didn't last very long. He was sent back to prison five years later after assaulting his wife. Wife. So he got married in those five years? I think so, yeah. Okay. I don't know if he was married before he was released on parole or if he was married... Once he was out, but he brutally assaulted her and was put back in prison. All his attempts for parole since then have been denied. Fair. His case management team says that they don't see any change in him and they do not believe he is repentant. He remains behind bars. At no point did either one of them really fully confess. So Ambrose at one point during a parole hearing sort of did partially admit having participated, but didn't really take any blame for anything. And I don't think Hutchison ever admitted fully to having committed the crime. And part of getting parole is admitting your guilt. Right. And rep- repenting? Is that the word? Repenting yeah. for what yeah. you've done. That makes sense to me. But you can't really apologize or show guilt or empathy if you don't admit to committing the crime Correct. in the first place. But it also becomes problematic for people who are wrongfully convicted that keep denying that they did something and could be eligible for parole, but they keep saying, I did not do this, and then that makes them not get parole, right? even if their conv- their conviction was wrong. So were was there... Not that these guys' conviction was wrong. That's but not the, what I'm well, trying to say. You know what, that kind of makes me think, though, like we're speaking as, I mean, obviously the trial, they were hung guilty, and, but, um, and we're telling the story from the perspective of it was them that committed the crime, but since they never admitted it, was there a lot of physical evidence to connect them to the crime? I mean, there was no, oh, the receipts. You said the receipts were they, found. They found the receipts. They found um, the car keys. The car keys, yeah. And the sense. ransom money. Right. The ransom money was found as well. So I think there was a lot of evidence. I mean, there is this slight... Oh, no, the ransom money was found. So I was going to say there was a slight possibility that it wasn't connected, that they pulled over other random humans, people. Yeah. But the fact that they had the ransom money and the car keys and the receipts. And they were known criminals. I think there was a lot, a lot there showing it was them. They probably were picked out of a lineup from the grandmother as well. Like there would have been... Possibly, yeah. I don't know. I don't know much. And there isn't a ton of information about the kidnapping. I actually found a court document that was available that has some information about it. But when you look at articles and things like that, I don't think the family talked about it very much. Well, and the murder of the two police officers would have overshadowed. overshadowed. And really, it's probably not something that you would want to advertise as a prominent business owner that... Like, you know, you don't want to put yourself out there as a target and your 14-year-old son, like what 14-year-old wants to have that attention on them and talk about it. So, I mean, fair. It was really, really unfortunate. It must have been terrifying and terrible for the family. But then relative to two police officers being murdered who also had families and yeah, Yeah. it's much more tragic. So you've talked about 
Ambrose. Yeah. Are we coming back to Hutchinson? We are. Okay. In November 2000, Hutchinson escaped from a minimum security prison while in a work release program. He simply walked away from it. I think he was working at the Humane Society and just left. Despite being 73 at the time, he was considered armed and extremely dangerous, and the police warned people not to approach him. Luckily, he was caught two days later and then sent to a maximum security prison. He would serve out the rest of his life behind bars. As his age advanced, he went up for parole again, and he kept asking, saying he wasn't a violent man, he was a changed man, and he shouldn't be in maximum security, and because of his advanced age, that should be considered. But he did escape prison at 73. I mean, that wasn't probably the smartest move. No, and there were numerous um, thwarted escape attempts from him as well, and he was quite violent in prison. So despite him saying that, the parole board saw his record from his time in prison and just, he died in prison. So he would serve the rest of his life behind bars. Neither one of the men have ever been repentant or fully admitted to their guilt. Hutchison passed away in prison in 2011. While I was trying to see if Ambrose was still in prison and what was going on with him, I found an article from a year ago stating that 70-year-old Ambrose, now Belgeron, he goes by the last name Belgeron now, is on a prison dating website. Oh my goodness. And is looking for women between the ages of 25 and 45. Anyway, the article went on about this uh, profile that he had. And it's not that I don't believe in prisoners' rights. I actually do, and I do believe in reform. I just don't think that when such a heinous crime is committed that minimum security and privileges should be an option. I don't feel like it should be on the table. So that would mean he has access to the internet. Correct. To some capacity. And I don't know a lot about the prison system. Do prisoners get those privileges in maximum security or is it it something that's earned? The lower the security level, the more privilege you have. And what would be his objective of finding a girlfriend? Would he have like... Um, conjugals conjugals and stuff stuff like that it depends but the thing is some of them just want someone to communicate with um his hope is probably still to get out of prison at some point hopefully that'll never happen he obviously proved that he couldn't be reformed behave himself out of prison like a reformed human being so i don't think he deserves and also the fact that they never really admitted it that's why people can only assume what happened to the two police officers right or how it happened because they never talked they never said that would be so hard for the families of, of course i mean i mean i mean obviously they were found guilty and like, again there was so much evidence but to have that real true closure if there was ever such a thing with with something like that i've never lost someone in such a heinous way but and then to just know that in some way that the people who did it had an inkling of guilt yeah i don't know i just find that so terrible for those wives and children it's very upsetting just to think about it without having known these people yeah i can't imagine for the families of those two men and i know being police officers you put yourself in dangerous situations daily i don't think this is an outcome you ever ever expect yeah you know like i like i said i felt like it was very targeted i do think it was like a crime of opportunity in the sense that they pulled them over and i think otherwise they just would have taken the money and run but to just go to to such like to go they could have sped off they could have sped off they could have left them handcuffed to the tree once the shovels broke but to go buy different 
tools, proper shovels, come back. There are so many opportunities to stop, think, question, talk one of the other one out of it. Yeah. You know, to say, man, we're here. Let's just, let's just book it and run. Not knowing they might've died from exposure or hypothermia. Like, I don't know, but you're still not executing them. Highly trained individuals. Yeah. They were probably negotiating, trying to talk to them, trying to convince them, bargain with them. I just couldn't imagine. Just trying to find a little opportunity And obviously there was, there was a struggle. But they obviously at one point realized, okay, there's no talking that's going to work. Let's just try it. Whatever we can. Right. Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah, I agree. It's incredibly heinous. And for him to be on a dating website. Right. I don't know. Somehow having joy in his life bothers me. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And again, not that I don't believe in reform. I just don't believe in this case that it's a thing that happened. And I don't think privileges should be available. No, I agree. There was actually during the trial, they talked about... Hutchison in Ontario like years before had actually there was an incident I'm not clear exactly what had happened but he and a partner had handcuffed a police officer to his steering wheel and his partner had to talk him out of killing the police officer so I think there was a rage there that he was targeting police or had this this rage this this whether it's authority in general or just police officers yeah I'm not sure I mean he had a 30 year Criminal career. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. One of Aurel Bourgeois' sons would go on to become an NHL hockey player, is very well known in the local area for the hockey school that he established. Sai's restaurant continued to thrive for years following the incident. The whole tragedy shook the community to its core. I actually spoke to my mom briefly about the incident. I do remember when we were young, she would talk about that sometimes. I think she went to school with one of Aurel Bourgeois' children, but I do remember being a kid and my mom bringing up this tragedy. Uh, She said that because her family was not in the city of Moncton proper when this happened, they were a bit sheltered from the events that were unfolding. She probably would have been about 14 years old at the time. She does remember hearing about the manhunt when they were looking for um, Ambrose and Hutchison. And she does also remember, you know, when you're a kid and people are talking about stuff and you're not supposed to be hearing it, but you do anyway. So she heard about the officers having to dig their own grave. And that's something that sort of always really stayed with her. That's the case of the Stein kidnapping and the murder of Corporal Bourgeois and Michael O'Leary, who were killed in the line of duty. Wow, I can't believe I'd never heard of this. I mean, I was before I was born, but my parents would have been younger than your mom, but only slightly. And yeah. like tonight, I never heard of this. And yeah. and there hasn't been, I mean, unfortunately there has been since more police officers killed on the light of duty, but I don't feel like there's been a large number in the city of Moncton. I don't feel like there's been a large number in New Brunswick. In general, yeah. I think so I feel Moncton like something... just has had some very tragic luck when it yeah. comes to that. Interesting. Wow, that's really tragic. Random question: Where were they? Where did they bury them? Where were they? Did it? Did it? It ever says say? Evangeline Street, twenty-five kilometers from Moncton. I feel like maybe it was the Dieppe area, but I'm oh, not sure. But it would have been very underdeveloped. It wouldn't have been developed time. at all at that time. Right. Like there probably would have been some houses, but no it would commerce. Have been essentially rural. Yeah. Okay. I'm that whole curious. main street of it was just houses. 
and the back lots, there was nothing there at all. Is there some sort of like memorial or something for it? Not that I know of. There might be, but it's one of those cases that I feel like nobody really talks about very much. I don't remember hearing. And I get it; it's a tragedy. And I think nowadays we have that habit of everything's on social media, everything's on the news, so we talk about everything, we see everything, and it stays in your mind more. But back then, I can see how the community would have wanted to forget and move on. And there was a really tragic child disappearance case that happened. I think very shortly after this so I don't know if it kind of overshadowed that situation maybe not overshadowed but it took everyone's attention um so I don't know if that's why or it's just the family doesn't want anything to be spoken about they maybe just want to sort of remember it for themselves fair yeah yeah all right so we're gonna change gears a little bit and I forgot to ask you but let's see if you can come up with something on the spot okay so at the end of every episode I have a moment where we talk about a weekly dose of kindness Mm. where it's either something that you saw someone do you could have done yourself something you heard about um, that just sort of made you smile or gave you a little bit of happiness hmm well, the other day I was going through the Starbucks um, drive-through, and the person in front of me paid for my coffee, not knowing what it was going to be. In Starbucks, it's you know not cheap. It's not cheap, and it's you know, and it's I not was, Tim Hortons. It's not Tim Hortons. That's what I was going to say without knocking Tim Hortons. Uh, it's happened to me a few times at Tim Hortons, and uh, I was so like, it it like made my day and then for the rest of the day I felt like I was kinder to strangers and people like I was purposefully waiting an extra few seconds to hold doors um I ended up getting to one of my meetings and my coworker had bought me a coffee although it was coming from Starbucks Mm -hmm. and so I would once I left the meeting I ended up having this extra coffee and so I saw a homeless person asking for money and I was like usually I would just be like sorry and I was like I've already had a coffee I'm going to give you my coffee and I just felt kinder for the rest of the day because someone showed a, me kindness and did a kind gesture yeah and it started my day and it was such a simple thing and so the following day um I went through the drive-thru again and I was like I'm gonna pay for the person's coffee behind me yeah I thought it was really nice and it, it really made me be kinder for the rest of the day it's funny I think something like that just gets you out of your own head a little mm-hmm. bit because we're all I mean we all have stressful lives we all have stuff going on and when someone takes a second to do something just a little extra it almost makes you be like okay not everything is about me there's other people in the world and I can take a minute to acknowledge that and be nice and like what's five dollars or what's waiting 10 seconds because I see that person coming towards the door or yeah or or giving a homeless person whatever change you have in your pocket or saying hi to someone Mm -hmm. or just acknowledging them there's um actually a Tim Hortons that I go to every once in a blue moon and there's one of the cashiers that works there that is the friendliest and nicest person I've ever spoken to. And like I can rush in at six o'clock in the morning and just want my coffee and go. But I actually always end up having a chat with her and it kind of brightens up my day. And it's just because she's so friendly. Yeah, She's so friendly and nice. And she didn't have to do that. She didn't have to be that way. She could have just taken my order and given me my drink. But yeah, it does. It does make your day better when someone takes a minute. Yeah, it really did. And it made me be kinder. That was the thing. Like, that's what stopped me. I was like, oh, that's so nice. And then for the rest of the day, I was like, I'm going to be a better person too. Yeah. It's just that pay it forward, right? And that snowball effect. So it actually worked. And I was like, huh, yeah. yeah. So let's all try to be a little bit nicer tomorrow.
I will. Tomorrow's a really busy day, and I will. It's a Monday. <laughs> it's let's a Monday. Just, let's just try to smile at one person one extra time. One stranger. Yeah. I'll do it. All right. Um, so thanks for co-hosting tonight. It was my pleasure. Hopefully we'll have you on the podcast again. Yeah, it was my very first. I know. <laughs> you took my Exciting. podcast virginity. Yeah, you did a good job. <laughs> well, I'll listen to it again and tell you if you did a good job. I might have to edit a lot out. It, it seemed fine. <laughs> All right. So have a good night, everyone, and stay safe out there. Bye. Bye. If you like the podcast and could take a moment to share, review, and subscribe, we would greatly appreciate it. You can reach us at crimeandmysterycanada at gmail.com. Please feel free to submit a story for our weekly dose of kindness, and we might pick your story to read on the podcast. You can also send me suggestions for local mysteries or crimes that you would like to see featured on our show. We can also be found on our Instagram page, Crime and Mystery Canada.